This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. When I was a child, I pretty much kept to myself. High school was this dangerous place for me, according to the indoctrination of a cult. I was programmed to believe that I was alone, without my parents, in Satan's Eden. This world where Satan had the ultimate power and the, the control. I was somehow led to believe that we were somehow trapped in this evil place, and that somehow the work that Jesus did on the cross was not as powerful as that of Satan. Christ rose into power, but this world was filled with Satan's agents rather than potential converts to Christ. Keeping to myself, I made no enemies and made very few friends. And most were friends until I voiced my opinion about Satan's Eden. And you can imagine what happened after I let them know that all other Christians in denominational churches had taken the mark of the beast. <laughs> I remember clearly a time when I was walking alone. And I sat in a group of people pretending they did not exist. And I listened to a teacher speaking as, as if she were one of the non-voiced teachers in the Peanuts cartoons. I wanted to go home. Not my home made of brick and mortar, but home to another world and leave all of these people to their doom. I can remember walking between classes one day, and there were three other teenagers that were laughing together and walking, and I was watching them in awe, thinking of how nice it would be to have a group of buddies that I knew and could trust and that were not marked with the mark of the beast. The problem was that I was staring, which breaks rule number one in the teenager code of conduct. And the guy in the middle caught it. He walked up to me and he punched me solidly in the gut. And it caught me by surprise. I was completely relaxed. So it took the wind completely from me. And I fell helpless to the floor, to the floor gasping for breath. I didn't know this boy. In fact, this may have been the very first time that I had ever seen him. But I was curious. I wanted to know who punched me in the gut. So I started asking around, and I got a name and tried to find out a little bit more about him. 
But before I could learn too much more, this boy who punched me in the gut was dead. Running along the tracks, he got a just a little bit too close and he was ripped apart by the force of a freight train that was loaded with cars full of coal. And I can't really describe my emotions, learning of his death. I wasn't angry with him. I, I didn't even know him. Yet I felt some sort of unusual justice in knowing that this guy who punched me in the stomach got his just reward. I quickly remembered the scripture that I was taught, one that seemed to have applied to this situation. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be drowned than to offend one of these little ones. Thinking of that, and specifically how I had been taught to interpret that verse, I held my head up. I had some sort of superpowers, a power that those people in Satan's Eden did not have. I was some sort of a wizard, a sorcerer that could conjure up death to anyone who opposed me. William Branham used that verse all throughout his ministry, specifically applying it to any who would question his authority. He would use it in examples of conversations that only he could confirm, of course, of those who would say something against his guessing game of names and addresses off of the back of their prayer cards. Typically, he would combine it with snippets of other verses, leading the listener to believe that all of these verses, taken out of context and blended together, was a magic spell that made them untouchable. 1958, he said, Jesus said, These signs shall follow them that believe, and it'd be better for you that a millstone be hung around your neck and drowned to the deeps of the sea than to even offend one of such. God, when he brings his children into a place, ordains them and overshadows them and positionally puts them into the place they are supposed to be, and then fools say remarks such as that. 1959, but as long as you're his child, the world had better keep their hands off of you. That's right, for he said it's better for you that a millstone be hanged around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea than to even bring an offense upon one of these little ones that believe in me. That's right. What is that judgment going to be? 1959, much later in life, in a director's position for a large firm. I had an employee that should have been fired. In fact, I tried to release him from his position, but unfortunately, his esteem with the owner of the firm was much greater than that of my own. This employee had a gift for trying to get ahead by causing others to fall, and I had watched it time and again. He was in a supervisor's position, a man that should help uplift his team and give them motivation and support. But if the opportunity presented itself, he would throw any one of them under the bus to lift himself up even higher. Things started getting difficult for me at the firm. The favor that I once had with the owner seemed to diminish, and seemingly for no reason. My work there had increased profit considerably. Projects were going well, and most people there seemed to like me. But I found out that this employee 
the, under me, had started throwing me under the bus. And he was privately speaking with the owner, telling many things that were not true, but combining them with just a little bit of truth so that it sounded real. And the owner started eating what he was being spoon-fed. And it didn't take long. Less than a month after I found out, this man took his team for a, to a park for a victory celebration for a project that went very well. I'm told that he put on his swimming shorts, took one dive into the lake, and never came up. Just that fast. He dove feet first instead of head first, and there just happened to be some cabling at the bottom, bottom of the lake. Somehow, in one single dive, he entangled himself in that cabling, spent all of his breath screaming, and drowned within just a few minutes. Again, I remembered that verse, and this time I was definitely angry with this man. Even after his death, I felt power over him. That power was in me, and I was the mighty sorcerer, untouchable with my power and might that I thought God had given me. My enemies crumble, my foes fall at my feet. Looking back, this is very painful. I almost can't number the sins that I committed during this time, all because of my programmed response to a situation that was meant to be a trial. I failed my test miserably. I was filled with pride, and one of the sins that is listed in the New Testament is pride. I was angry. Another sin. Christ said that when we are angry, we have committed murder. Matthew 5.22, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable at judgment. But the worst sin committed, although slightly unintentional, was sorcery. What if my belief that my enemies will die had somehow invoked accidentally some spirit? What if I was using the power from some elemental spirit, and I thought it was from God. Many cult pastors are now starting to tell their congregations that the Bible is filled with conflicts. And for me, this seemed to be the case. What I had been programmed to believe seemed scriptural. Matthew 18.6 does say, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone be hanged about his neck, and that he were thrown into the depth of the sea. Matthew 18.6, King James Version. How can I reconcile this with the fact that many that Christ sent to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ would be in the face of many who were going to be offended? And he didn't say that we should go be offended so that our enemies will die. We are supposed to be forgivers, not killers. We're supposed to be filled with love, not hate. We are supposed to bear our cross as he bore his, against a world that will persecute us until he returns. When asked how many times we should forgive, Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Matthew 18.22 If the Bible is to be our absolute, and it is to be our code of conduct, 
then that code must not disagree with itself. We can't take two opposing stands if we're to stand at all, especially when they seem to be arguing directly with each other. The problem with my training on hanging a millstone around the necks of my enemies was not a fault of William Branham's, other than the fact that he refused to study beyond the notes of Schofield and Charles Taze Russell. He was reading from the King James Version, and the words that he read seemed accurate, and they were. The problem is not even with the King James Version. At the time it was written, this single statement that conflicts with all other scriptures and gives us the power to kill did not have the same meaning. Few people in the cult realize this because they have been programmed to believe that the King James Version is the only Bible that God had his hand of protection over. And many are falsely taught that William Branham only studied from the King James Bible, when in fact William Branham promoted other Bibles, even false Bibles, like the version that's written by George Lamsa, a man who denied the deity of Christ. In the Elizabethan English, the dialect that was predominant during the time of the translation of the King James Bible, this word offend had a much different meaning than it does today. The number one meaning that's listed in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is this, to transgress the moral or divine law, to sin. Shakespeare wrote this, if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. But in today's English, even the understanding that we had during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, this word offend had a different meaning. We do not currently understand this word to mean causing us to sin. We now interpret this word as causing us great dislike or distress. The word offend has somehow blended over time with the word disgust. William Branham's teaching on this word, though misguided by the outdated translation in the King James Bible, is more strange than you realize. Reading the King James Version in context, we find that the summary of this chapter is exactly what is the true meaning of this word and how it is defined, a warning to those who would cause others to sin. In fact, the very next verse says this, Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs that offenses come, but woe unto the man by whom the offense cometh. Matthew 18, 7. It's funny now that I think about it. Woe unto you for causing disgusted people. Had I read this verse in context, even in the King James Version, I would have likely understood it as it should be translated today. But the really strange part is that William Branham himself understood the meaning of the word. He understood the meaning in the upcoming verses. The next verse is one that has been correctly understood by William Branham and the cult pastors for years. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, offend thee, cut them off, and cast them from thee, 
It is better for thee to enter into a life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet, and be cast into everlasting fire. I've heard ministers preaching from their King James Bible, and change this word offend to sin. And it makes much more sense than trying to interpret this verse like they do the other verse. Why would anyone cut off their foot because it disgusted them? And why would their foot even disgust them unless they hadn't cleaned between their toes for a very long time? The Greek word translated is scandalize. The word from the root word scandal. The root word we use today is scandal, but it's spelled differently. S-K-A-N-D-A-L was changed to S-C-A-N-D-A-L, which means to stumble morally. The incident surrounding a scandal disgraces or damages the reputation of the offender, which is exactly the most damaging to the testimony of a Christian. Many good soldiers have fallen to scandals, many of which were unjustly accused. Once the scandal has made it into the minds of the people, however, there's no avoiding the thought. So it is a discredit to any who would try to continue their mission to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The newer translations of the Bible use the correct translation of this word. And when you read the entire section in context, you'll find that the translation fits like a glove around this word that has falsely taught us to be sorcerers. It says, Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to, that believe in me to sin, it were better for him that a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Matthew 18, 4 through 9. There's another word that has lost its translation over the years, and it goes hand in hand with this word offense, and that word is curse. In today's English, we view cursing as cussing, or we picture some witch standing over her pot of, of brew casting spells on other people. But the old English version of that word is much like we find in our false teaching of the word offense. A curse was the idea that you can cause evil or misfortune to befall upon another person. Cursing is widely used in the cult today. Many ministers will describe how evil will befall you because you question or because you leave. Many of us have, that have left have now been cursed by ministers. 
telling their congregations how we were doomed to die. I think one minister down in Georgia even put a timeline on mine, describing how souls in prison had escaped his cult and they died within just a month. It's no different than our misuse of the word offense, causing evil to befall on someone, whether by word or by deed, is a curse. And it is a, an abomination before the Lord. Cursing is not something that you would find the Jewish people doing during the times of Jesus or the apostles. Under the Mosaic law, this hideous crime was punishable by death. It was one of the sins listed that resulted in stoning of the offender. God did not want people within his people destroying one another from the inside. I look back at these two men that I cursed, and I beg, I beg forgiveness from Christ. No, I did not directly cause their death, and I did not summon up demons to attack them. But I did not have the love and forgiveness that Christ wanted me to have. I did not, act, I did not forgive these men 70 times 7. By not mourning their lost souls, I was actually rejoicing in their deaths. What if I had endured the test? What if I had endured and these two men had been led to Christ? What if by my persecution, these men would have seen God in my actions? What if I had conducted myself completely differently? not thinking that they had taken the mark of the beast, and instead I viewed them as potential converts to Christ. I ask myself, how many more people could I have led to Christ while I was programmed with false teaching from a cult? How many did I turn away because they were not part of God's little bride? How many did I offend in today's English? because I disagreed simply with their outward appearance. Friends, it's not too late to lead others to Christ. Jesus did not say to bind yourselves together in communes, for I will come and wipe out the majority of mankind. Jesus said this, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Thank you.